Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is the debut of Where We Live's new theme song. It was composed by sound designer Hannes Brown. We hope you like it as much as we do. Today, where we live, we check in on the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine in Connecticut and nationwide. We also learn more about how the vaccine works as states and the federal government weigh current supply. That's later. First, healthcare workers have been eligible to get the vaccine in the last few weeks. They've been under a lot of stress in this pandemic as they continue to treat and care for so many with COVID-19. And some have shared their stories in the book, Care Under COVID. It documents the experiences of nearly 20 long-term care and home health workers, all members of the New England Healthcare Employees Union. Claire Martin's story is in the book. She's a personal care attendant from Middletown, Connecticut, and she joins me now on the show via Zoom. Claire, welcome to where we live. Hi, thank you for having me. Along with us also is Connecticut Public Radio reporter, healthcare reporter, Nicole Leonard, and she reported on this book and the stories of these uh, healthcare workers. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Good morning. So, Claire, I mentioned you're a PCA or personal care attendant. So talk about who you've been working with over the last few months and what you've been doing each day. Well, I've had um, the same consumer for five years now. Uh, she's an elderly woman. Um, she suffers from some dementia. So when we started using the new precautions like wearing masks and gloves, um, she she gets a little fearful because she doesn't quite understand mm -hmm. why we have to wear the PPE. And she's not really capable of understanding what's going on right now. So we're kind of um, trying to keep the safest um, environment possible while still maintaining a homey feel. Um, and that's been very challenging. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about the challenges, Claire. Uh, you mentioned that you've been working with this individual for some time, but you're also you know, thinking about uh, the virus and your home life and trying to be safe. And I'm just wondering if you can talk through um, just what that's been like for you each day as you um, go and care for this person. Uh, well, in the beginning, especially uh, with so much doubt about coronavirus, uh, we were taking so many precautions. It was a totally different routine. You know, we used to just kind of walk in the house and do our normal tasks, and it was a very comfortable environment. And it still is, but with the extra uh, worry of coronavirus and my client having uh, conditions that would 
would probably mean that she wouldn't survive it if she caught it. Mm -hmm. uh, that was added stress as well, because then there was a feeling of, of guilt even that, you know, if she ever did catch it, was it me? Um, was it somebody else? How did she get it? Uh, so it was just, it was a lot to try and keep her, um, try to keep her comfortable while we did things like, you know, we had to sometimes wear our, our gowns or, you know, some other PPE while we were doing different treatments and um, we had to kind of talk her through it. Mm. Now, I mentioned that your story is in this book, Care Under COVID. Could you read a passage for us, Claire? Certainly. Coronavirus dictated our new routine. I would go to work and wash and sanitize my hands until my skin cracked and stung. Every time I went to work, my heart felt heavy, as though I were grieving something that hadn't even happened yet as I went through the motions, performing my tasks with extra caution. It hurt even to talk to Ellie sometimes. I was fighting an instinct in me, conceived long ago, to run from any loss. And when I looked at her now, knowing that she could be taken from me at any time, completely out of my control, all I could feel was pain. Again, I'm speaking with Claire Martin. She's a personal care attendant or a home care worker from Middletown, Connecticut. Uh, she and other uh, frontline workers uh, shared their story in the book Care Under COVID. Uh, Claire, when you talk about the pain uh, and the worry that uh, that dominated you during this time, where did you turn for help? Um, well, I ended up going to the hospital because of the stress, honestly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I had kind of a nervous breakdown at one point, and so I had to get treatment there. And um, it, it was kind of a blessing in disguise because it helped me to be a better, you know, more stable and a better PCA overall because I could handle more. Um, and also my union, 1199, SEIU 1199, um, they have such a supportive structure. And there are so many people there that I've met that I can talk to and you know, I don't feel alone anymore with them. So that was a really huge help. Mm -hmm. uh, you're being very upfront about your personal experience. Uh, when we think about uh, the stress, the anxiety that so many are under, that's important for you to talk about the mental health impact as well, Claire. It is, yeah, because um, when that all happened to me, there wasn't a whole lot being written that I saw about mental health during this. You know, we were all so consumed by the physical aspects, obviously. So I thought when this opportunity to write my story came came along, I thought, well, I really wanna write about this piece, even though it's hard to write about because I feel like I couldn't possibly be the only person. I know there are other people who are struggling. Um, alcoholism is up. I, I lost a friend to suicide earlier this year. Um, so people are dealing with these private struggles and it's hard enough to talk about mental health at the best of times. So I feel like we should try to get used to it now and destigmatize it because once we come out of this pandemic, there's gonna be a lot of people suffering from trauma, from grief and loss and all the stress. Um, so that I just think that's something that we need to pay more attention to. Well, Claire, we're, we're glad that you're doing better and that you're sharing your story with us. You talk about PPP a few times. I'm wondering, we heard so many uh, short, about shortages of PPP in those early months. How did that impact you? Oh, that was a big, that was a big fear um, because we had a pretty good stockpile where I was of 
gloves and masks and, and things like that. But um, especially at first, everything was running out. The PPE that you could find, you know, online or scouring the stores, uh, they all had markups. So, I mean, we don't get paid very much, but we were trying to uh, pay for our own PPE uh, in the middle of that. And yeah, we were really afraid because we felt like, well, how are we going to protect our client if we can't even protect ourselves? We don't have the right gear. Um, and there was a lot of fear because even though she's, our client stayed home, we have to go in and out. Some of us have um, two jobs or three jobs. So, you know, we could pick it up and we just didn't want to spread it anywhere. We needed that PPE, but it took a really long time for it to roll out um, consistently. So right now you have the adequate amount of PPE to do your job? At the moment, yes. And during this pandemic, you've been able to stay uh, free of the virus as well, Claire? I have. Um, I, I kind of can't believe it. But um, out of all the things, I, I, I had a lot of things going on this year. But coronavirus, I actually did not um, contract that. Not yet. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good so. to hear. Now, for this show, we're also talking about the vaccine rollout, both in our state and nationwide that's coming up. We know healthcare workers in Connecticut are among the first uh, to get vaccinated. Are you able to get the vaccine? I am, and I actually have an appointment next week. Oh, no, oh, this wow. week, actually. Um, and, yeah, they, had, they made um, home care a priority as well, which is good because we're not always included in that um, healthcare umbrella under the state's definition. So this time we were, and um, I'm very happy to get it. I, I think that's going to be a lot of relief. And I have a lot of hope just knowing that eventually we're all going to be able to get vaccinated. Again, that's Claire Martin. I wanted to bring into the conversation here on Where We Live, Nicole Leonard, who's Connecticut Public Radio's healthcare reporter. Nicole, uh, we heard Claire uh, talk about her story. She's going to get the vaccine uh, this week. Remind us again, who is in phase 1A of Connecticut's vaccine rollout? Yeah, so phase 1A so far, mostly for the most part, includes healthcare personnel. Mm -hmm. So those are healthcare workers that are in hospitals, that may be in private settings, um, that are really on the front lines of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. They also include people who work in those environments. So we, we need to remember that um, it's not just the doctors and the nurses and the attendants, it's um, maybe janitorial staff or administrative staff who need to be on site and are therefore have the possibility to be exposed. Um, also in Group 1A are residents and staff of long-term care facilities. These are nursing homes and assisted living facilities and some other group um, settings. And so they have been receiving the vaccine as well. Um, and then a third more smaller group are medical first responders. So these are, you know, involved in EMS calls. Um, they're, you know, we know that there are paramedics at fire departments and police stations. And so those people are also eligible for vaccines at this point. So remind us the number of people so far in our state, Nicole, that have been vaccinated. What has uh, the governor's office uh, released? So, so far, as of last Thursday, about 101, more than 101 
1,000 uh, doses have been administered. And those are doses, Lucy, because I say that because um, that includes both dose one and some of uh, dose two of the COVID-19 vaccine. And we know that uh, the two uh, different kinds of vaccines that have been FDA authorized um, are made by Moderna and the other is made by Pfizer and they require people to get two doses. So um, that 101,000 doses, most of them um, include the first dose. People, 101,000 or more people have gotten um, their first dose, and then that also includes some second doses um, where people are uh, getting to the point where they're going to be fully immunized from the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Now, you just mentioned also that uh, all nursing home residents, or most of them, have completed that first dose as of late last week. Our colleague Patrick Scahill reported, though, that doesn't mean all nursing home staff are taking it. Do we know why? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, nursing home staff, um, really anybody who works in any type of profession is not, um, uh, they fall into the, the sort of broad problem of vaccine hesitancy, and that affects a lot of different places, including um, workers in nursing homes. And it also, unfortunately, includes um, people who work in other type of healthcare settings, even if they um, they are more familiar with uh, health care and see the day-to-day -day, um, illness. And so a lot of that has to do with, I mean, this, this vaccine is new um, as this virus is new. And so people are hesitant about um, taking something that's so novel that hasn't been around for so long. There's also a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of incorrect information perpetrated online. There's a lot of things on social media about why people shouldn't take the vaccine. And a lot of those things are not based on any type of scientific fact. So, you know, all, all of this combination, some people um, are, are hesitant to take it right now. It doesn't mean that they'll never take the vaccine, but they, they are hesitant to take it right now when it is uh, their best opportunity to get it, especially if they're included in some of these early phases. And um, workers uh, at nursing homes and other long-term care facilities, um, uh, they you know, they they fall to this problem as well. Mm. We're going to be talking more about, again, the feeling from uh, some about this hesitancy to take uh, this particular vaccine. Uh, we're going to have immunologist Dr. Ellen Foxman from Yale School of Medicine on to talk again about the vaccine science and also help answer your questions um, if you have concerns. That number, 888-720-9677, that is coming up. Now, Nicole, when we think about 1A, where does Connecticut stand with completing 1A, phase 1A, and moving on to 1B? And who's included in that? Right. So uh, we are, at least the state officials hope that we will be wrapping up um, group one, phase 1A uh, this month. And, and what means is, you know, the, when we talk about these phases, it doesn't mean that they're going to happen uh, back to back. There are, there is going to be some overlap. So what the, um, what our state leaders have said is that once they start noticing appointment slots for vaccination start to, to fall, right, they're not being filled because right now the demand for the vaccines are certainly, in, you know, 
ahead of the supply. So that's not a problem right now. But once we get to the point where um, slots are not being filled in phase 1A, then that's the signal that we're ready to move on to some of the groups mentioned in 1B. And that could be as early as the end of this month here in Connecticut um, or as, you know, in early uh, February. Um, and when we talk about phase 1B, it hasn't been um, finalized for the state of Connecticut, but we know that there are a couple of groups that are generally going to be in phase 1B, and that's going to include residents who are 75 years and older, and some of these folks haven't been captured in nursing homes or long-term care facilities because they live on their own. They live in private um, residences. Um, they're not in congregate settings. Uh, the other group is frontline essential workers. Um, and this is something that uh, there is a list based on federal recommendations on who might be a frontline essential worker um, that the state of Connecticut is closely following. So those are going to be teachers, um, grocery workers, correctional facility staff, and others, as well as the people who work in those environments. Like I said, you know, similar to hospitals and healthcare institutions that may include support staff and janitorial services and people who work in those settings. Um, the other group that is being considered by the state of Connecticut to include in this phase 1B is going to be people, residents who live in other types of congregate settings. So initially, for example, um, in prisons, the correctional staff were uh, recommended for 1B, but not necessarily the um, people who are incarcerated incarcerated and uh, Connecticut is recommending that those people also be included. Um, and this includes other people who live in other congregate settings, like it might be inpatient uh, mental health or substance use um, facilities. It may be people who are in halfway houses or any type of setting that they live closely with other people and they may also be vulnerable uh, health-wise to contracting or suffering a severe COVID-19 illness. So that now, pretty much in general sums up phase 1B. Now, Nicole, when you mentioned uh, the recommendations of who will be vaccinated next, these are recommendations from committees, but it's Governor Ned Lamont that has the final say? Yes, that's right. So uh, pretty much uh, Connecticut has formed its own, um, it's the COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Group, which is a group of experts from all over the state. It's a combination of people who work both in public office and in private settings, healthcare settings. There's um, health equity experts on those groups um, and, and professionals from a wide variety of industries across Connecticut. And so that group is looking very closely at federal guidelines coming out of um, it's called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. You'll hear it called ASIP. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the, the federal guidelines. Connecticut's closely following them. And then they have specific subcommittees. And one of them is the Allocation Subcommittee here in Connecticut. And that group is specifically tasked with uh, going through these phases and determining who is going to be eligible next for vaccinations. And, and those recommendations should be even more finalized this week as that group meets mm -hmm. again tomorrow. Now, Nicole, uh, Christie on Twitter asked, uh, I'm glad you brought up the teachers, and she wants to know when are teachers getting it and how will they be notified? So you mentioned they're in 1B. So can they expect this in February? That's a that's a tricky question. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, timeline, for one thing, has been such um, 
it's been problematic and it's been hard to figure out. Uh, that's part of the confusion, not just in Connecticut, but all over the country of people standing there and saying, when is it my turn? Even if they may fall into a specific category of, um, you know, a central worker or if they're more part of the general population. So that is, um, it's, those details are still being ironed out from what I understand so far in Connecticut is that they are going to set up some sort of reservation system uh, for people who become eligible um, to sign up for vaccines and that <clears throat> may be partnering with, you know, certain workplaces. Um, and in her case would be maybe her school district or her, you know, her individual school partnering with a either a local health department or a health organization that has the vaccines to get those workers registered for appointments and then vaccinated. Um, but that's not a lot of that is not online yet. As far as I understand it, it is coming this month. They are um, trying to get those sort of uh, infrastructure um, systems up and running so that, you know, when it's these groups times, uh, they'll be ready to go. But as I understand it, it's, it's a lot of communication back and forth, people being connected maybe with their employer and workplace and paying attention to what their employer is saying, because um, they are likely going to get notified by the state of when it's their mm -hmm. turn. There are so many moving parts. Uh, Nicole, we just got about a minute left. I, you know, I have to ask, you know, while we're talking about the vaccine rollout, the COVID numbers continue to go up in our state. Can you update us on where that stand, including the death rate? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Lucy, because I know that a lot of the focus right now is on the vaccine rollout. And it's ex it, it, it's extremely important for what we're going through and to try and get this pandemic under control and hopefully one day um, stop it um, to see the end of it. But we do know right now, while this rollout is happening, um, that cases are still happening in Connecticut. People are still getting infected. I mean, as of Friday, we've had 3,200 more cases since the previous day. That's just in, you know, a 24-hour period. Wow. Um, and 37 more people died, which brings, you know, more than 6,300 residents in Connecticut have died during this COVID-19 pandemic. And so that's really significant and remembering when we talk about the COVID-19 uh, vaccine rollout, the people who are running this rollout, the, the, you know, doctors and nurses and support staff who are helping to try and get those doses in the arms of people are still trying to manage the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the sickest people who are uh, affected by it. That's Nicole Leonard, healthcare reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Nicole, thank you. Thanks, Lucy. Also want to thank Claire Martin, who joined us, a personal care attendant, a PCA from Middletown, Connecticut. She told us she's getting her vaccine this week. Claire, thank you for joining us. And you can learn more about that book that shares stories from other frontline workers care under COVID at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Now, coming up, we're going to hear from a Kaiser Health News reporter about vaccine distribution nationwide. And an immunologist from Yale School of Medicine joins us to talk about how the vaccine works and answer your questions too. You can join us 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. The COVID-19 vaccine started being administered to healthcare workers around the holidays, and that's one of the reasons the rollout has been slow, according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert. Now, have you or someone you know received the COVID-19 vaccine, or are you next on the list in Connecticut? Do you have a question about the vaccine? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-W. NPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In a couple minutes, we'll be joined by Lauren Weber, Midwest correspondent for Kaiser Health News, to talk about the approach to vaccine rollout nationwide. But first, I wanted to welcome back to the show Dr. Ellen Foxman. She's an immunologist at Yale School of Medicine. Ellen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So we're going to get into a lot of uh, details about the distribution that looks very different from state to state. But there's still so many questions about, is this vaccine safe? And so we wanted to start there, Ellen. We've talked about it before on the show, but it's worth repeating. Give us the basics about how a vaccine works. And then looking at these two specific vaccines that are available, Pfizer and Moderna, can you explain how they're working uh, to uh, help contain and, and help people stay healthy and away from COVID-19 infection? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to explain. Uh, So a vaccine, we're all familiar with vaccines from childhood. And a vaccine is truly one of the miracles of modern medicine, which we don't always remember because we don't, we aren't faced with diseases like smallpox and polio anymore, largely because vaccines got rid of them. And the way that a vaccine works is You know, many people are familiar with the idea that when you get an infection, your body then remembers that infection and forms defenses so that if you get exposed again, you're now protected. That's exactly what a vaccine does. A vaccine basically makes your body think that you had an infection so that you form that protective response if you get the infection again. The difference is the vaccine does it in a safe way without a real infection so that you're not at risk of any of the consequences of the infection. And so, so the, the way the vaccines, that's general for all vaccines, the, the childhood vaccines, the flu vaccine. Um, and what's special about this vaccine is many of the other vaccines we're familiar with actually are made by making the virus and then killing it or isolating pieces of it and using, using that as a vaccine to fool your immune system. This va- the vaccines that are approved in the U.S. actually don't have any, are never made from viruses at all. So there's no live virus in them at all. They just contain a little piece of information from the virus that gets put into our body's cells when you get the injection in your arm. And that makes your body make a little piece of the virus for a short period of time and elicits that defensive response so that you're then protected against the virus. Mm. You mentioned this little piece of information. So when we're looking Mm -hmm. at the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, they're called RNA vaccines. So when we think about the coronavirus, uh, what these vaccines are are helping our immune systems uh, figure out a defense against uh, the coronavirus. Yes, exactly. So, So that's the new part. So these are actually the first vaccines that are widely being used and that have gone through a big phase three clinical trial. In or that are of the type of RNA vaccines. But something a lot of people may not know is that the technology behind these vaccines actually started being developed way back in the 1990s. So it's not, it's, it's new that we now have a vaccine that's actually approved for use, you know, and has gone through a big clinical trial that's of this RNA vaccine type. 
but the technology itself is is not new. It's 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 been developed for a long period of time. When we think about again this particular COVID nineteen vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, I read a description a while back about how the RNA vaccine it sends a message to our cells uh, to then um, mount a defense against a, what's a spike protein. So if someone gets a, a vaccine, the COVID nineteen vaccine, your body is then able to uh, be alerted to what this spike looks like. So if you get coronavirus, then it can mount the defense. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it works. So uh, for some of the other vaccines, a little piece of the virus is actually like injected in your arm. So your body recognizes that piece of the virus in the future. The special thing about the RNA vaccine is RNA is basically a message that our cells always use normally to make proteins. Proteins are the thing that the uh, immune system recognizes. So what this vac- these vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna do, is basically deliver the RNA to your muscle, and then your muscle produces a part of the virus called the spike protein. That's the part of the virus. If people have seen, probably everyone by now has seen these mm-hmm. pictures of the coronavirus that look like a ball with all these spikes sticking out. Well, those spike proteins, which are part of those spikes that you see sticking out, those are what the virus uses to attach to our cells. So, so uh, scientists figured out that if you block those spike proteins, the virus can't get into the cells and, and form an infection. So the, vac- so the vaccine tr- sort of instructs your muscle for a very short period of time to make that spike protein in a way that makes your body form defenses against it, to then block the virus from entering your cells and causing an, inf- an infection in the future. You're hearing Dr. Ellen Foxman again, an immunologist at Yale School of Medicine, as we talk about the science behind the COVID-19 vaccine. And also we're going to be talking more about the distribution of this vaccine around our country. You can join us if you have a question, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, uh, Ellen, there are benefits to this RNA vaccine, but we've also heard it's making it hard to store and distribute. Talk about the difference differences between the Pfizer and Moderna? Well, actually, they're really quite similar. They're both, they're, they're very similar in the technology and in the type of, you know, the type of materials that they're made out of. And both of them need to be stored at cold temperature in a freezer. And that, that's been one of the reasons why, even though it's a great vaccine technology, it maybe hasn't carried forward uh, in, there have already been RNA vaccines designed against the flu and other viruses, but one challenge is the need to be stored in the freezer, which is really the same for both viruses. And so that, that's, that's, like, that's a challenge with the vaccine rollout, making sure that there are freezers around to store the vaccine when it's gonna be distributed. And really, even though there's slightly different storage requirements for mm-hmm. both of the vaccines, they're, they're probably pretty similar in, in their stability and their, and their storage needs um, in the long run. I wanted to take a call uh, as we talk to, again, Dr. Ellen Foxman. Uh, Marianne from West Hartford has a question. Go ahead, Marianne. Yes, I have two questions, and I'll, I'll be brief. First question, I heard a report that some providers of vaccines, like drugstores, are creating waiting lists for people at the end of the day to get um, COVID vaccines that might otherwise go bad when all of their appointments have already been filled. I'm wondering if anybody is 
um, planning on doing that kind of distribution or waiting list for unused vaccine at the end of each day. My second question has to do with um, risk factors for grouping. Um, there are the um, much-known risk factors such as heart disease, obesity, and high blood pressure, um, um, et cetera, for, for um, severe COVID. However, I've also read that there are two risk factors. One is, I think it's type O blood, uh, but also, two, interestingly, a correlation with, um, of all things, Neanderthal DNA and severe cases and severe outcomes in COVID. Uh, I'm wondering if in the definition of, of risk factors, if there's any room for clinical judgment for allowing those kinds of kind of esoteric uh, risk factors for severe outcomes to be included. And those are my two questions. Ellen, do you want to take that second one about risk factors? Yeah, I think I can take the second one. As far as uh, the distribution, I may, I, may, um, I may leave that to Lauren later. Yes. Uh, but, but yeah, so as far the, the thing that you refer to with Neanderthal DNA, I think what you're referring to is there have been some studies recently showing that um, relatively rare genetic changes that a person might have that affect their innate antiviral defenses can actually, like there, there are certain vi defenses we have against viruses that are from remembering a previous infection. That's what a vaccine is all about. There's also certain defenses that we're born with that help protect us against any virus, even if we haven't seen it before. And those kind of defenses are particularly important for a new infection like this one, where, where nobody has pre-existing defenses. And there are genetic mutations that can affect those. And people have actually shown that if you have those genetic mutations, you might be more at risk for COVID-19. But I would say that at, at this point, the biggest issue is getting that vaccine into arms mm -hmm. and the complexity of testing for all these genetic mutations or parsing everybody out by, you know, the 20 different risk factors that might be effective might just have the effect of slowing things down. Whereas if we can just get vaccines into arms as fast as possible, that's our best way of curbing the pandemic. And, and the focus on that is probably going to Focusing on how we can do that is probably going to make the biggest difference rather than the, imagine the time it takes to parse out all of these, these specific risk factors and figure out, you know, places in line. I think that just getting more vaccine available to as many people as possible, as fast as possible, is the way to go. You're listening to Where We Live with Dr. Ellen Foxman, immunologist at Yale School of Medicine. I want to bring into the discussion now on Zoom as well, Lauren Weber, Midwest correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Lauren, thanks for joining Thanks so much for having me. So we're hearing that this process, this rollout is going a lot slower than public health ex experts um, had wanted. And so tell us about uh, what you are observing uh, across the country and some of the factors behind uh, the rollout so far. Well, look, you know, we have a 50 state solution and 50 state plan to this national vaccine rollout. And what we've seen with that is that state by state, it varies widely how successful the rollout has been going. And all public health officials would say that so far, this is just going too slow, considering the unprecedented rise of COVID cases that we've seen and the crush that we expect to continue to grow post the holiday travels. Uh, in Connecticut, actually, I will say, you know, the Wall Street Journal had a great article yesterday detailing that of all the states, you all have actually distributed about 50% of the doses you've been allocated 
whereas the average is about 28% allocation. I mean, so far the CDC keeps a nifty dashboard so people can watch this on their own that shows about 6 million of the dose of the 22 million doses that have been sent out to states have actually been given to people and you know basically only 6 million shots are in people's arms and that's just really not the level of distribution that people are looking for to make a dent against this rise of cases that we're seeing. Mm. So Connecticut's definitely not Florida, and that's a, a good thing when it comes to this uh, yeah. vaccine rollout, Lauren. So talk about who's administering these uh, doses around the country. When we think about the chronic underfunding of local health departments, I'm wondering if you can weigh in on how fragmented this all is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so here's the deal. Local public health departments and state public health departments have been underfunded for years. Uh, You know, their staffing is down 38,000 people since the recession. Their funding for local health departments is down 18% since 2010. You know, all of that leads to somewhat of a disaster where these folks are also overburdened with contact tracing and COVID case investigation and have now been handed the largest vaccine rollout in our country's history. I mean, it's absolutely unprecedented. And for the record, too, they didn't have any funds to pay for this until very recently when Congress finally passed about $8 billion in um, allocation for them. And so to get this kind of logistical nightmare off the ground while you're also putting out the fire of you know the largest pandemic this country has seen, in a century, it is quite the task in the first place. And, you know, to kind of give it to this workforce that's pretty shell-shocked with the amount of work they already have really complicates matters. And so what you've seen is that a lot of this vaccine distribution has been offloaded or more so, you know, privatized in a sense to, you know, hospital hubs, which is great as they have the infrastructure to hold the super cold Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine as well, but also leads to some inequities in a sense, because, you know, it makes it easier to deliver in urban areas. Um, It also leads to, uh, you've seen lots of reporting on hospital staff that maybe are not frontline, potentially having earlier access than other people due to their affiliation with the hospitals. And it essentially is just not a governmental public health run issuance when you are relying heavily on these hospitals as distribution. It certainly is filling a gap, but it is not necessarily the governmental rollout that you would expect. So Lauren, talk through with us now that we have a new administration uh, coming, uh, what changes uh, does the Biden administration look when we think about you know distribution, but also getting as many doses as possible into the arms of Americans? So the Biden administration has vowed as part of their 100-day promise that they're going to get 100 million shots into people's arms, which is a lofty, lofty goal. Uh, and one thing that they came out with just a couple days ago was currently, you know, the Trump administration's uh, guidance is to withhold about 55% of the shots uh, that are available for the second round of shots. These are two, you know, as was explained, these are two dose regimens. So you usually go, and then a couple weeks later, you have to go back to get your second dose to have, um, you know, the completion of your shot regimen. And the Biden administration has said, we're going to release all the doses we have and then ramp up distribution by using the Defense Production Act to make sure that we can reach this goal of getting 100 million shots in people's arms and so that we can continue to build herd immunity uh, to, to, to fight off these unprecedented numbers. And that is a deviation from what Uh, the recommendation is by these vaccine companies. Uh, So it remains to be seen 
how this all unfolds once the Biden administration takes office here in a week and a half. Mm. Uh, Ellen Foxman, as an immunologist, you know, what's your response to this potential strategy when we know there's already issues with distribution from state to state? Uh, you mean the strategy of wi- getting of all the do- doses? All the- in. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, definitely the the first challenge that we're seeing right now is distribution. Even the all the allocated doses haven't been given yet. So, so that so that's the first challenge is is getting on top of that and getting streamlined procedures to get those allocated doses to people because that that's essential. Um, so, so that's the first challenge. But hopefully, this is just the hiccups you see at the beginning of a you know trying to do this huge effort. And hopefully, over time, a lot of these things will be solved and better processes will come about. The next issue is, um, yeah, it's a bit controversial. The idea should you all the there were two big clinical phase three clinical trials of the Pfizer vaccine. There was one and the Moderna of over thir- about thirty to forty thousand people. So really good data showing if you get these two vaccine doses, you have a very, very good efficacy, not over 90, 90 or 95% efficacy of preventing COVID-19, which is really wonderful. Um, now, the way that the, they were done is you got two shots, either three weeks or four weeks apart, depending on the vaccine. Now, based on what we know about immunology, could you extend that to maybe two months apart or three months apart and get the same efficacy? Perhaps you could. Um, ideally, you would really want to, if you want to be sure you're going to get that 95% efficacy, you would you would give it the same way that it was tested. But given that it's an emergency and given that there's a good chance that production could be ramped up to get those second doses to people, you know, in a timely fashion, you know, that's that's what the Biden administration is proposing, that it's a risk worth taking. Dr. Ellen Foxman is an immunologist at Yale School of Medicine here on Where We Live, along with Lauren Weber, Midwest correspondent for Kaiser Health News. We're going to take a short break, and after we come back, we'll continue our conversation, and including what's up with that mutant strain of COVID. We'll talk about that with our guests. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Now, we know listeners have heard about this new strain of rapidly spreading COVID first found in the UK. Connecticut has now reported several cases in the state with this new strain. Uh, Dr. Ellen Foxman, how concerned should we be? Can you talk about a little bit about how this new strain developed? Yes, well, uh, it's not uncommon for viruses to mutate. That happens all the time. And often those mutations aren't significant and they don't change the biology of the virus very much. But in this case of the new strain we've been hearing about out of the UK, it does appear that that this strain is spreading faster than the other coronavirus strains that we've had all along since the start of the pandemic. Now, there's a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot of caveats to the claim that it's spreading faster. Mm. But the epidemiology really looks like it it might be more contagious. The good thing is it doesn't look like it causes more severe disease. 
But the bad thing about being more contagious is it means there's potential for more people to get it faster. So, so again, it, it brings us back to the topic that we're at today, which is uh, we need to do everything that we can to just end the pandemic as fast as possible. And our best tool for doing that in the long run is a vaccine. And our best tool for doing that in the short term are the public health measures like mask wearing and social distancing. If someone gets the COVID-19 vaccine, it protects them from getting really, really, really sick. But what about transmission, Ellen? Well, that's a great question. That has not been formally studied yet. So in the in the um, eagerness to actually get data about whether the vaccine prevented people from getting sick, it was decided by the companies to focus on that goal, focus on getting excellent data for that. And there is excellent data that the vaccine protects people from getting sick. Uh, that being said, it hasn't been formally studied yet whether the getting the vaccine completely prevents you from carrying the virus to another person, which is why the public health recommendation is, until we know that for sure, to continue with the public health measures like mask wearing and social distancing. A caller asked uh, that they heard Dr. Fauci saying it might be possible to modify the mRNA vaccine to work if there are new mutant strains. But the caller wanted to know, Ellen, would that have to go through a whole separate FDA approval process? And how long would that take? Well, the, the first thing I'll say is so far, the studies look like the current vaccines protect against the strains we know about. So that's really good news. I mean, one thing people should know is that piece of the virus that's that's in the vaccine is a pretty big piece. So it, it, your immune your your body can form defenses against a lot of different parts of that piece. So that makes it pretty um, robust in terms of being able to protect against a lot of different strains. So that should be reassuring to people so far. Uh, the really great thing about RNA vaccines, one of the big advantages, is that they can be developed quickly and they can be manufactured quickly compared to traditional vaccines, as, as we have seen this past year in 2020. Mm. Um, that being said, another topic that we were talking about with Lauren earlier is speed is of the time is of the essence. Getting, getting this vaccine out there is of the essence. So any need to change something and remanufacture it could be a little bit of a delay compared to just using what we've got. So best case scenario, we can use what we've got and it will work, which is what it looks to mm -hmm. be the case so far. But there is that possibility of of changing this much more easily than a traditional vaccine. Mm -hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, Lauren Weber, I wanted to go back to you, your Midwest correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm going to paraphrase a caller's question. Wants to know about are the, how are states addressing potential concerns for undocumented people to make sure they get vaccinated without personal details being shared? What can you tell us? Um, absolutely. I mean, it, it, as I said earlier in the call, it varies tremendously state by state on what the policies are for that. Um, you know, some states you will see, I imagine, much more sensitivity around that than potentially others. So I, I really think it depends state by state. I am not familiar with Connecticut's plan on that, but um, I would imagine that they address it somewhere right there. Mm. Now, Lauren, we talked earlier about how the Biden administration's approach will be uh, very different from uh, what we've seen over the last several months. But we should highlight that uh, in countries that have a national health service, uh, they have not had the issues we've had um, with getting this vaccine out to people. It just points to another problem with our health care system, Lauren. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as as we stated at the top of the call, I mean, it's a 50 state solution. And with the National Health Service, you have a more mandated, normal way of tracking things. You don't have kind of this variance by state by state when it comes to the people prioritized. I know, as you guys discussed earlier in this show that, you know, in Connecticut, the doses are going first to first responders in the medical profession. In other states, some of the doses are going to those over the age of 65, such as in Florida, Ohio and Delaware. So really, honestly, it depends on where you live of what category uh, you are in and, and how early your access to vaccine is going to be. And all of those complicating factors play into a slower rollout. That's Lauren Weber, Midwest correspondent for Kaiser Health News. We'll link to some of her stories at WNPR's uh, tweet, Twitter uh, and where we live at where we live. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. No, thanks for having me. And Dr. Alan Foxman, always a pleasure to have you explain vaccine science and more with us, immunologists at Yale School of Medicine. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about where we live. Just download us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.